to do that very thing this morning, is to glorify your name, to sing praises about who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, to make plain the person and work of Christ. We come humbly understanding that we are, we are prone to the ex- exaltation of ourselves, Lord. We desire to make much of ourselves and, and seek to, in the flesh, rob you of the glory that is, that is only due to you. <laughs> But we come and we gather this morning to be reminded about the truth, not just about ourselves, Lord, but, but the truth about what you've done, that you have wiped our slate completely clean, that you have cleansed us from the inside out, Lord, giving us the righteousness, righteousness of Christ to now walk in. And in doing so, Lord, you've not only united us to yourself, you've united us to one another so that, so that we can really and truly come, and as one voice, as one people, glorify your name. And we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that you would continue to, to change us from one degree of glory to the next, and we come hopeful and expectant that you're going to do that in us through your word. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, worship team. It was awesome. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? We doing all right? It's good to see everybody. Thanks for being here. Uh, go ahead and turn to Romans 15. Romans 15. Hard to believe we're already nearing the end of Romans here. If you're just visiting with us for context, uh, this whole year we've just been going through the book of Romans, and so it's been, it's been a long journey. It's been a good journey, hopefully encouraging. I know I've learned a lot. We'll be picking up at the beginning of chapter 15 here. Let me read for you, starting in verse 1. Again, going to verse 13. Paul writes, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let me tell you just a a short, quick story about a thief 
and an honorable man. It was the birthday of, of this honored man. So many, including family and guests, they gathered together to, to celebrate this man, uh, all bringing very nice gifts in his honor. But a thief, knowing that there would be a lot of valuable items being brought and gifted to him, he, he slipped into the house and he hid himself by lying face down on a beam in the roof of the great hall where, where this banquet and party was going to be held. Uh, from there, he held, he held the perfect vantage point on all the people coming in, and he could see all the valuable gifts that, that were being brought in and given to him, planning the whole time to steal them once everybody left and everyone in the house had gone to sleep. Late at night, though, when everyone had left, the, the honorable man, he came to look at all of his gifts and admire what was given to him. And as he turned his back to the thief, the thief, he, he took his chance to kind of lean out and over the beam to look at the layout of the room. And as he did so, he, he cast his shadow across the floor. Well, this man, he saw the shadow, but he didn't show any signs of having seen it. Instead, he called his servant and he asked him to bring the best food that they had left and lay it at the table for one guest. When this was done, the honored man, he dismissed his servant he turned upward toward the beam where the thief was, and he said, Will the gentleman who is on the roof beam come down and enjoy some refreshments? Having no other choice, the thief, he came down and he ate. His host, this honored man himself, who was all for serving him while he ate. And after he was done, his host, he, he gave him a bag of silver coins and simply asked him to make good use of them. Ten years passed. And again, this, this honored man, he held a birthday celebration. Towards the end, a stranger came in bringing gifts of gold and jewels with him. And he insisted to see the honored man. And so the servants, they took him to the old man's room. But the host, he, he didn't recognize him. And so he asked the stranger what his name was. And the stranger smiled and he said, I'm an honest man. <laughs> and I have learned to live a righteous life but it was not always so. Do you not remember how you once asked me to come down from the roof beam and partake of refreshments? And this man, he was astonished at this, but he grew even more so when he heard how his, his own kindness had changed this man's life to one of righteousness and honor. The point of the story, it's to, it's to illustrate how just one man, one person's goodness and, and their faithfulness can result in the goodness and faithfulness of other people. How goodness, it's, it's not ultimately expressed inwardly, but outwardly into other people and the, the exponential effect that it ends up having on other people. And in this way, friends, this morning, it mirrors the story of the gospel that we've been, we've been tracking with through the whole book of Romans. The gospel story that is while, while humanity was seeking to rob God of the glory that was due to him, that God in Christ through his spirit, he, he didn't give us what we rightly deserved. Instead, he took on the form of a servant and welcomed us into his home to dine at his table and be with him so that God's glory would ultimately be given to himself. But the result of that now is not that we just we just get to kind of sit down and spend life seated at his table, just enjoying the benefits of Christ for ourselves. We too are called to glorify God with our lives as well. We too now are called to, to get up 
and to walk in a similar pattern as Christ, humbling ourselves, taking upon the form of a servant, and treating others the way that God has treated us to continue to bring about his plan and his purposes. But friends, even then, I think we have to realize something greater than just kind of our responsibility to faithfulness and following what Christ has done. We have to realize that God, God is not ultimately concerned with just sort of making a people for himself that are faithful to him for, for 40 or for 50 or for 60 years or however long we have on this earth. God is concerned with making for himself a people that are faithful to him forever, for eternity. And likewise, friends, this is how it matters to us. Our hope, it's not in just a better life right now. Are you following me here? Our hope is for a better life for an eternity with God. And this is what I want to convince you of from this text and, and convince myself of in all honesty. Like I, I need convinced of this every single day to live in light, not of a temporary earthly hope that's concerned with just, just the, the momentary here and now, but to live in light of the eternal hope that is stored up for us in heaven in an eternity with God that starts right now. Albeit imperfectly, but that nonetheless, it does start right now and it starts with us now learning to walk in the righteousness of Christ that he's given us. So friends, that, that we too can come back someday and say, although it was not always so, I have learned to live a righteous life. We'll see this happen in two movements this morning. First, we'll look at what Christ has done, what he's accomplished in the gospel, and then we'll, we'll sort of just ask the question how that informs or how that teaches us to now live a righteous life. And so let's look at this text in that order. What has Christ done and how does it instruct the Christian life? First, what has Christ done? Paul says that Christ has not pleased himself, but rather he, is, he has taken the reproaches or the insults against God upon himself. Uh, as he commands us to not please ourselves, which we'll, we'll kind of back up and talk about later, he said in verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches or the insults of those who reproached you fell upon me. This is another quotation out of Psalm 69, and again, we've kind of done this already, but the word reproaches here that some of you may have, it can often, under, often be understood as, as uh, just like insults or mocking, um, or rebellion, but, but context is needed from the psalm to really understand Paul's point here in quoting it. Three things really quickly about the context of this, this specific verse and phrase in Psalm 69 that's being quoted. One, the Messiah says that he, he bears this reproach because of the name of God. That's the reason. Uh, if you look in verse 7 of Psalm 69, it says, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach and that dishonor has covered my face. And so his, his, his suffering, it doesn't come because of anything that he's done inherently. It comes because of the, the reproaches or the insults or the rebellion of those who have insulted Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, the, the hostility that is shown towards God, it's fallen on this king, the Messiah. But two, the ultimate reason that he does this is because he desires for God to be worshiped. That's the motivation behind, behind this work, and it's also the end result there in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9, this is right before the little quoted phrase that we have in Romans 15, says that zeal for your house has consumed me. 
That's the motive behind taking this upon himself and that, that, that he, has, he has great concern for true worship of God to take place in the house of God. The significance of the house of God in the Bible is just very simply put, like that's, that's where God's at, right? <laughs> that's, where he, that's where he is, that's where he resides. And so, so the purpose of the Messiah, follow this, the purpose of him bearing the reproaches of God on himself is for the worship of all people in his presence. And this is exactly what we see happen by the end of the psalm. Not only is this, this suffering servant praising his name, which it says pleases God in and of itself, but now, now all of heaven and earth is seen praising him together, dwelling there in his presence. Put a bookmark in that idea real quick, because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Remember that. Third and finally, Psalm 69, this act of taking upon these, these insults that are leveled against God upon himself, it's going to result in an even greater humiliation before his perpetrators. Verse 10, it says, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it now became my reproach as well. And so, again, the idea that the Messiah, he's not only taking upon the insults and the reproaches against God upon himself, but then in his weeping and in his humility and doing that very thing, that's going to reap even more insults, more mocking, more humiliation upon himself as well. And this is the testimony about the work of God's Messiah that, that Paul here in Romans 15, he, he kind of pulls on to talk about how Christ does not please himself, he says. But I think his point in quoting this to, to describe the work of Christ in Psalm 69, I think it's essentially twofold. One is just very simply that surely if Christ cared to please himself, he wouldn't do that, right? That's one point. But also, Paul wants us to consider on the other side, well, why would he do it then? If it wasn't to please himself, why would he do it? What reason did he have? And, and the ultimate reason, it's what we just stated a second ago. I told you to just put a quick bookmark there. Yeah, it was for God's glory, but, but God, he's glorified in a particular way here, which is by humanity once again living in his presence, worshiping him. This is the motivation, the, the end goal for the Messiah, King, to, to bear the rebellion of humanity against God upon himself. So it's all said and done after Psalm 69 actually plays out in real space, time, and history after he himself is, is insulted and humiliated in verse 19, after he's given into despair in verse 20, after he's given poison for food and sour wine to drink in verse 21, that he would be saved and set on high, verse 29, and see this now, so that his servants now, the servants of this same king who follow him, so that all of them would dwell in the house of God and love his name. That's verse 36. That's all in Psalm 69. And it's the story of the book of Romans as well. It's essentially this. Christ does all of this so that God could welcome sinners into his presence. But don't miss this part of it, friends. It only comes on the other side of suffering and humiliation and death. Richard Sibbs, in his famous book, The Bruised Reed, says, glory follows affliction, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. <laughs> That's a get, about to get real, real here in a little bit, by the way. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring, 
so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. The Messiah suffers to bring glory to God and what his suffering accomplishes, the the way that God is glorified, it's all people now brought into God's presence worshiping him. This should sound familiar because it's exactly how Paul, he he begins to reason with these early Christians in verse 14, 3 at the beginning of kind of this little section we're in and start to press them into unity with one another. He says essentially, welcome him because God has welcomed him and he's welcomed you too. (laughs) It's the same thing he says in verse 7 this morning. He says, welcome one another for God has welcomed you. Friends, rightly understood, we, we... are all the thieves who tried to rob God of his glory when he's, he's the only one that is deserving of honor and praise. But, but what he does in light of that is he, he welcomes us in and he makes us benefactors of his goodness. And it's significant because this is the righteousness that we now learn to walk in, not, not just glorifying God, not even just glorifying God by living in unity, but also the way in which we actually do that through the sacrifice and death of ourselves for the good of others. We'll get there this morning, I promise. But for now, it's what Christ comes to accomplish, which is it's welcoming us into God's presence through his sacrificial work on the cross. The second thing we see Christ do is that he confirms the truth of God's promises. Uh, Paul says in verses 8 and and into the beginning of 9 there, he says, Christ becomes a servant to the circumcised, or just the Jews there. And and he, again, he did it in this way that we've just described from Psalm 69. That's what Paul's leaning on. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That Christ's humiliation to to reconcile humanity to God and welcome them back into his presence, it's done to make God's word true through the fulfillment of his promise to the patriarchs. But it's also, again, this idea that we've talked about, that the content of that promise, it it wasn't just given to the Jews for the Jews' sake only, for them to be welcomed in, but for the Gentiles to be welcomed in as well. We're not going to labor on this idea too long. I think we've made it and elaborated upon it several times throughout the book of Romans. It's a big part of what he's, what he's been doing kind of through the middle and even uh, now just fleshing that out into, into practical life of the church um, in the book of Romans. But, but there is a, a little nuance here that I think is somewhat helpful as we just try to navigate the Bible and how it talks about this conversation and this issue, who the people of God are. Um, because it says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's the language. And the point here being that the, the promise itself, it, it really was just given to the Jews, right? It wasn't given personally to the nations. It, it certainly included the nations, but it, it was just given to the Jews. Uh, this is the idea behind um, the statement in the beginning of Romans 9 where it says, you remember, he says, they're the Israelites, and to them belong, and he lists a few things, but one of those things is the covenants. To them belong the covenants. And so, again, there's all kinds of positions on this, um, but, but even under the position that we've kind of understood Paul to be saying, and, and really the whole Bible to be saying, that there is now one people of God through faith that experienced the exact same salvation, that's the church. Even in that, we cannot deny that the promise, it was only given to Israel. 
the nations are blessed by it, but it was, it was just given to the Jews. We could, I think, illustrate it like this. There's a, there's a Broadway musical play uh, called Annie, and it, it tells the story. Annie, she's this little orphan girl um, who ends up in the lap of a, a Depression-era billionaire named Oliver Warbucks. <laughs> Fitting name. I feel like if you have the last name Warbucks, you, you have to be rich, right? Like that's kind of, maybe not, I don't know. Unlike most children, though, at her orphanage, Annie, she, she fully believes that her parents are going to come back and take her out and be with her again. And so when this, this very wealthy, rich, powerful man, uh, Mr. Warbucks, offers to adopt her, she asks him <laughs> not to take her home, but to help her find her real mom and dad instead, to which he agrees. And there's a lot more to the story, but the premise of the kind of the, the rest of it is that this man, he's going to offer a reward for the real parents of this little girl to, to come back and to take their daughter and be with her again. And the point is this, it's that the promise, it, it wasn't made directly to the parents, right? It was made to the little girl, Annie, but from the beginning, it involved the parents being brought back in, united to their daughter, actually sharing in that reward as well. And that's, that's the parallel to this, this promise to Abraham that's made that really the whole Bible then develops. It, it wasn't made ultimately to the nations, to the people outside of Israel, but from the beginning, it, it 100% involved them being brought in and made benefactors of those blessings. This nuance is significant because people, they'll, they'll come to places like this where it says, uh, the promise made to the patriarchs or to the nation of Israel. And they'll kind of use that language to then argue that, well, it must be, it must be separate fulfillments, right? There must be some sort of separate f- fulfillment just to Israel. But that's not what's happening. <laughs> that's not what Paul has argued in Romans 9 to 11. That's not what we saw happen in Psalm 69. That's not what we're going to see in just a moment when we, we kind of look at the scope of the rest of the Old Testament. That's not what's happening here in Romans 14 and 15. What's happening is Christ has come and he's torn down the walls of hostility between the two. And he's now made the two groups of people that could not coexist together. You understand that? They couldn't be together. He's made them one. And now he's calling the two to walk together, not as two separate people any longer, but as one people of God so that they would glorify God together and as such, prove God to be faithful to his everlasting word. And it's the Lord's faithfulness to his word that actually gives us the hope and the encouragement that we need, even right now in our context, to press on in this already established but not yet complete reality of the new covenant kingdom with the unity of all people. This is the third thing that we see Christ do here. Not only does he, he actually come down and accomplish God's plan of reconciliation, he now provides us with the instruction and the encouragement that we need to now follow in the same kind of life. Verse 4, again, speaking about this work of Christ on the heels of quoting Psalm 69 there, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I just want to pause for a second and ask you, ask everybody, do you find 
encouragement and endurance and hope when you read your Bible. You should, but not in the sense of it just being sort of a a better moral handbook or kind of a place to find a nice little emotional high to get me through the day or, or even just a motivational tool to, to, to do better and spur me on or a place to just find examples of how to live. Friends, friends, hear me. The encouragement that comes from the Bible comes from the message of hope that it presents, which in turn then gives us endurance to press on in this life. And here's the thing, it's all because of the overwhelming message about the person and work of Jesus. That's it. And friends, here's the other thing. This isn't, this isn't just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. <laughs> it's the Old Testament. It's Psalm 69. It's the, it's the entire Bible that is presenting you with a message of hope in Christ, telling us who he's going to be and how he's going to do it. And this is what presses us forward as we now try, we try to, to now walk faithfully as God's servants, just like he did, bearing the suffering and pain and struggle of this life as we do so, but pressing on nonetheless. It's the same statement he makes in, in the famous text about the inspiration of the Bible, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he, he says, all scripture... All scripture is breathed out by God and hear this profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I don't I don't know about all of you guys, I don't know about everyone in this room, so I'll just speak for myself on this a little bit. Uh, I, I grew up in church my whole life. <laughs> Been in church as long as I can remember. Uh, was always told, as long as I can remember, that it is important to read your Bible, that you need to do it every day. But at the same time, like I look back and I think about over half my life, and I just try to think about the feelings that I would have after I would sit down and read my Bible, and I don't remember ever feeling encouraged by it. I was confused a lot of times, uh, and and. At best, I came away with some good kind of moral principles to live by and and reminders. And I think if if we're honest, I think a lot of us have probably had that experience at some point as well. But, But I think part of the reason why we don't find encouragement when we sit down to read our Bibles is quite simply, we don't see how it testifies to the person and work of Christ. And I'll just be frank, we, we kind of joke around about certain parts of the Bible in the church. We do this all the time. We, we, we avoid certain parts of the Bible. And we avoid them for this very reason, because, because we don't get anything out of them. <laughs> we don't get encouraged by them. We get confused, and at best, we maybe get some better moral principles to live by. But friends, it's not a Bible problem. You understand that? Like, like that reality that that happens, it's not a problem with the Bible. It's an us problem. <laughs> we don't understand it. We joke that Bible reading plans, they, they go to die in Leviticus, but friends, it's because we don't find any encouragement in the book of Leviticus because we don't understand how it points to the person and work of Christ. We joke around kind of about the awkwardness of certain parts of the Bible. Uh, Song of Solomon, 
or, or other uh, very graphic parts of the Bible, we joke about, around about the awkwardness of it. And we kind of avoid it uh, because we don't, again, understand how it points to this overall hope in the person and work of Jesus. And, and please understand my point in that it's not to now come on the other side kind of and like try to chastise anybody for how well they, they do or, or don't know the Bible. The point is really just this. It's very simply to just try to show how practical this task actually is. See, we, we get into this thing in the church where we, we kind of, like we take knowledge of God here and, and then we take a life of faithfulness and loving people and, and we separate them. <laughs> and, and we come to believe that it's, it's some people are just good at one and maybe not the other and vice versa and that's kind of okay and it's okay for me to just be good at one, you know, whichever one comes more natural, it's okay for me to just do better at that. But friends, the Bible, the Bible never separates the two. The Bible never separates knowledge of God, knowledge of, of his word from the real practical daily task of faithfully loving people. You understand that? Paul says in Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 1, very plainly, that love, it grows through knowledge of him. That, that the actual goal of instruction is love. The two go hand in hand. I, I've heard it said that if you, if you... If you think that the Christian life is only about knowledge of the mind and not a loving heart, you don't actually have the right mind. <laughs> and on the other side, if you think that the Christian life is, is only about a loving heart and you don't see the need for a knowledgeable mind, well, you don't have the right heart about it either. And Paul puts them together here as well because everything from Romans 14 into our text this morning, even go back to to. Chapter 12, as Paul has really begun to lay out what the gospel looks like, just practically lived out in the life of God's people, it's summarized by one thing. Love people. That's it. That hangs over all of the specifics. But here's the thing. <laughs> we need the instruction and the encouragement and the endurance to love people that comes only from the Bible, friends, because because in the Bible, we find the testimony about the person and work of Jesus that fuels us to press on in this faithful work to the end. This is exactly how Paul and the, the entire Old Te New Testament, for that matter of fact, encourage us now in gospel faithfulness. It, it testifies first to what Christ has done in fulfillment of the scriptures and then very simply just asks us to follow him. It's only in this light with the endurance and encouragement that comes from our hope in Christ that we begin to consider what it is we're called to walk in as God's people. So as we've said, Christ, he bears the rebellion of man against God upon himself for the purpose that he would welcome all people into his presence of God once again. And now Paul encourages us, I think, to do, to do two things, to live in peace with one another and to live in light of the hope of the gospel. We'll look at both. First, we're encouraged to live at peace with one another. Again, the context of this is we, uh, we know from last week in Romans 14, it's this idea of the, the weak and strong brothers in Christ now and this idea of uh, Christian freedom or Christian liberty and the fact that there are going to be some who are more mature in their freedom of Christ, in Christ uh, and some who are weaker in their faith on these things, but that, that both ultimately are called to pursue the mutual upbuilding of the body by honoring one another's convictions. 
right? You remember that. To allow each other the room to be, to be fully convinced what is right in their own mind on these things, as he says. But at the end of chapter 14, Paul, he sort of made this pointed press on the stronger Christians specifically to, to, to lay down their rights and freedoms for the good of their weaker brother, however necessary. And he continues on with that same press on the stronger Christians at the beginning of chapter 15 when he says, we who are strong have a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is, of course, rooted in the fact that Christ, he, he has not pleased himself, as we already said, which is our discussion about Psalm 69, how he, he sacrifices himself for the good of others. And, and so now we are called to do the same thing in the context of our rights and our freedoms. But again, it's all, it's all motivated by this kind of just following in the pattern of Christ, doing what he does for the reasons that he does it. In the same way that the Messiah, he acts for the sake of the glory of God in Psalm 69, so now does the new covenant community now intended to function for the glory of God as a unified body. Uh, Look down with me in verse 6 and following. The press towards living in harmony with one another, Paul says, is so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, welcome one another as God has welcomed you. And then again at the end of verse 9, after he has explained how Christ came to make the promises of God true to save both Jew and Gentile, he says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then again, these, these words that we love to hear, right? As it is written. And then what follows, there, it's just kind of a string of more Old Testament texts. And what's, what's significant about all of them there is that they're examples in the Old Testament of God being worshipped over the salvation of the Gentiles. That's what's going on in all of them. First, Psalm 18. Uh, also, 2 Samuel 22. Those two texts are nearly identical. But there... It's the Davidic king, actually, worshiping God amongst the Gentiles. He's with the Gentiles, worshiping God. Then Moses is quoted in Deuteronomy 32, speaking of the Gentiles rejoicing over salvation with his people, the Jews. Psalm 117, Gentiles along with all the peoples, praising God. Isaiah testifying to the fact that the root of Jesse, he's going to rule over not just Israel, but the Gentiles, and that he is the hope of the nations. Friends, (laughs) This is the voice of the Old Testament. This is what it's saying. But it's also the voice of God's people now. It's the voice of his church, Jew and Gentile. And as such, friends, it should be our voice as well. Read how Paul describes it in Romans 15. He's, again, he's reading the Old Testament storyline. And he says that our call to now bear with one another, accept one another, follow in the work of Christ, not pleasing ourselves, desiring to build one another up. It's for the ultimate purpose of God's glory through his people, unified, with one voice glorifying God together. That's what Christ came to do. That's what we're now called to follow in. And so friends, (laughs) get that first. And then very practically, just live in unity with one another. Don't let these arbitrary external things that have no no bearing on our position with God any longer, don't let them get in the way of your unity in the gospel. That's the point. 
friends, part of what we have to see in this, with this, again, this idea of kind of learned righteousness, is that when we, when we just step back and, and, and pay attention and kind of look at the whole thing, one thing we should see is that what we're called to do for God's glory pales in comparison to what Christ has done. We simply walk in the reality of what he gave up everything to accomplish. Christ's work, it, it's, it's instructive for us both in the similarities between what we're called to do, but also in the differences. So, so how maybe is, is what we're called to do the same as what he's already done? Well, just like Christ did not please himself, neither do we now seek to please ourselves. Just like Christ sacrificed himself to build the body, so do we now sacrifice ourselves to build one another up. Just like Christ laid down his rights as the son of God to make us sons and daughters, so do we now lay down our rights and freedoms so as to not destroy the work of God and one another. Just like Christ sought to glorify God by establishing peace between him and his people, so do we seek to glorify God by living in peace with one another. Glory follows affliction. That's the way. (laughs) We don't get unity with one another without walking in union with Christ. And this is the pattern he set before us. Christ, he's, he's accomplished his work not by seeking to please himself, but by laying himself down. And we're to do the same. But now how are they different and what does that tell us? Quite simply, we're not called to nearly as much as what he's done. (laughs) Is that fair to say? Can we all agree to that? In fact, he's already accomplished what we could not on a cosmic scale. We simply walk in his victory. One commentator says about this, I just love how he puts it. He says, it is noteworthy how the apostle employs the example of Christ in his most transcendent accomplishments in order to commend the most practical duties. In other words, yes, we are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ in the gospel, kind of. <laughs> There's a scene in the movie, I remember the Titans, where the team, they're out in the hot sun, and uh, Coach Boone, if you remember this, he's just putting it through them, man, like putting them through it. They're all lined up, jogging in place, doing up-downs, and uh, Coach Boone, he kind of goes through this uh, question and answer exercise in the middle of this workout. He says, what are you? Mobile, agile, hostile, they respond. He says, what is pain? French bread, they say. <laughs> what is fatigue? Army clothes. Will you ever quit? No, they say. The point being, you, you, you think this is hard right now, what you're doing. What you're doing right now is nothing. What is pain? Pain, pain is literally the French word for bread. French bread. What is fatigue? You think you're tired right now? Go put on some army clothes and do what they do, and you'll see. It's really not that bad. And so when we come now as God's people and we consider what Christ did, and then we come, we come back to ourselves and we ask what the takeaway is for us in our context, and, and specifically the issues of, of conscience that we have difficulties with each other on, but also, I think, just bearing with the weaknesses of one another, just in general. 
I think one thing that we can say is that comparatively speaking, none of it is really that big a deal compared to what's been done for us. Is that fair? Sure, it, it's, it's, it's hard and it's difficult, not minimizing that, that's true, but, but that's only because of our sin. <laughs> and it's as much of a problem with us as it, is, as it is with the other person. If we weren't sinful, we'd respond to people's sin perfectly every time, and, 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 we'd actually have a good heart about it. Compared to the magnitude of what Jesus Christ did to to accomplish unity among his people, what we are called to do is nothing. And praise God, this is the case. Amen? Praise God that that even though, yes, we're called to this, that, that all of God's plans and purposes are not ultimately contingent upon my faithfulness. Amen? Praise God that this work of unity among his people to make his truthfulness known and confirmed, to glorify himself by solving the problem of sin. Thank goodness that those things do not ultimately hinge upon you and upon me. But at the same time, we see that God, he's still bringing this new reality, this new life for his people into realization. And he sovereignly does that through our faithfulness in this life. It's the reason that we both have responsibility to walk in it and we also have the hope and the endurance to do it even when it's difficult. This is the second thing that we now walk in. This will be our last point. We walk in the hope of Christ. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you Fill you, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This may sound, again, I don't overly practical and simple, maybe, I don't know. And I, I know we just kind of downplayed it compared to the work of Christ. But, but we also do want to come on the other side and, and be honest about it experientially, that the reality about this life and work that we're, we're called to with one another, it's not easy. Like, it's not. <laughs> Can we just say that this morning? <laughs> it's not easy. I think we can all be honest and admit that sometimes living in, in, uh, in community and relationship with God's people is full of joy and full of goodness. Hopefully, we've all experienced that. It is 100% true, but it's also at times, friends, very difficult and tiring. Because again, as we said earlier, at the end of the day, we are all still sinners who, who at the very best are stumbling our way forward into heaven. My dad, he's worked in law enforcement pretty much um, my, my whole life. He's seen a lot of things and worked with a lot of people who have seen a lot of things that uh, thankfully many of us will, will never have to see or deal with. Um, one of his lines that he always gave us as kids, uh, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Every dad has like a group of lines that they just go through, it feels like. One of his lines that he said sometimes was, helping clean people up means you have to get down and crawl in the sewer for a while. And anybody, (laughs) anybody 
anybody who has just been involved in, in helping anybody probably knows that to be true. To, to bear with the failings of the weak, as Paul exhorts, exhorts us to, means that we get down and we crawl in the sewer of their sin with them. Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is simply to love one another. This is how we do it. And some will say, well, it's a bit of a different conversation there in Galatians 6. Sure, he's probably speaking more broadly, I think. Uh, but, but, but the point is the exact same. <laughs> Bearing with people in their sin and immaturity with them, it's literally walking in the sewers of life. That's what it is. And friends, if you're, if you're crawling through the sewers with people, bearing with them in their weakness and not being encouraged at the same time with the hope of the gospel, you will not make it. Like it's, it's, not, it's not good enough to just be committed to it, right? And to tell ourselves we want to do this. We have to constantly be fueling ourselves with the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures that produces what? Hope in the midst of it. Like if you think you're just going to kind of white knuckle it and, and push through, good luck. <laughs> you're, you're going to destroy yourself and the people around you. That's all that's going to happen. People are just, quite honestly, like they're just way too difficult for that. <laughs> this work, just like Christ, it's not going to be easy for us and it's not going to be pleasing to ourselves, it's, it's literally described as the death of ourselves for the building, building up of others. And this is why the Bible tells you both to not grow weary in doing good, but it also provides you with the hope that you need to actually press on in doing that. And the endurance we need to walk in this, as we've already said, it, it, it comes from the encouragement of the Scriptures, which comes from the message of hope that it presents. And Paul has demonstrated what that hope is, friends. Again, it is the, it's the person and work of Jesus. It's never detached from the testimony of the person and work of Christ. And so, when you're crawling in the sewer of immaturity and of sin, bearing with the failings of weaker people, trying to build them up and bring them out of it, do you ever get out of it by, by looking down at yourself, knee-deep in the feces that you're walking through. No. Just like Jesus, you look to the goodness and the faithfulness of your Father in heaven, friends. You look upward where Jesus is, having already proved God's word to be true in everything that he says, having, having not just come down and walked knee deep in it, having been drowned in it, having been afflicted to the fullest extent, bearing the reproaches of God upon himself to the fullest extent, giving himself up to the fullest extent, yet now seated at the right hand of God in glory, having already accomplished the redemption, not just of people to himself, but of people to each other. He sits there because because he's already taken the, 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 the rebellion of humanity upon himself. He sits there because he's already made God's promises true. And friends, 
He sits there, now giving us the encouragement and the endurance to press on in the same work. And so that's where you look. And you ask God to give you the joy and the peace of faith so that by the power of the Spirit, you can abound in hope and you can press on to the end that he set before you, friends, so that we too can go home one day to meet Jesus and we can say, (laughs) although it was not always so, I have learned to live a righteous life. Worship team, you can come up. We'll close with this, friends. It's all related. And we can't, we can't separate any of these things from each other. Christ, he, he, he accomplishes what we're called to do, but that we cannot do because of sin. And he, he now gives us his word, which again testifies to him so that we can have endurance through the testimony of who he is and what he's done, the encouragement and the hope that it provides us to walk in what he's already accomplished. To actually be the means by which he continues to bring about this plan and purpose of redemption to completion, friends. That's it. And I don't know all of the specific things that that we have this morning. I don't know what specific things we have just in general with the church. I don't know what specific things we all have maybe against each other. I don't know know what things we have in this room that that would keep us from with one voice crying out to glorify God, but, but I do know that the answer to all of them is the exact same thing. It's looking to Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, just, just believing what he's done and what he's called us to as his people. And then, friends, just, just simply walking in hope that he's secured it for us in Christ. Amen? That's all it is. Let's pray to that end, Lord, and then, uh, friends, and and we'll do that exact thing. We'll stand and glorify God together. Lord, we thank you again for the abundant goodness that you've lavished on us, Lord, that you, that you, you see us in our sin, and you don't just turn away from us. You don't give us what you deserve, Lord. You come down as a servant, taking it all upon yourself to welcome us in, to sit at your table and dine with you, Lord, and share in the benefits of salvation. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to never, ever get over our salvation, Lord, but help us to also see the responsibility that we're now called to walk in as your faithful people, Lord, as a faithful depiction right now in this moment, right now in our context, as a faithful depiction of the eternal hope we have, where all of God's people will be gathered together and as one people with one voice, glorify God for eternity. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.